Thanks, Livy. If you have a Bible, you want to open it up to Luke chapter 22. Hard copy or you, you may have it on a phone. We're going to start in verse 66, and then we're actually going to bridge into chapter 23, work our way down to verse 25. So Luke 22, 66 through 23, 25. And as you get settled, just kind of a, a general word about this passage, but also about studying and understanding the Bible kind of in general. It isn't always the case that you could take any passage of Scripture, uh, break it apart however you want, and after reading that and looking at that passage of Scripture, that you would always walk away with like three really tidy application points where no matter what amount of Scripture you read, you get to the end of it and you say to yourself, and now I'm supposed to go and do these things. That's kind of the nature of our like um, almost devotional style of engaging with scripture. It's certainly the kind of modern way of thinking about scripture, but really that's not what the Bible is for. The Bible isn't so that you could study a particular passage and then walk away and say, now if I just go and do this, I'll live a better life, or if I just go and do these three or four things, God will be pleased with me, or God will love me. In fact, the, the entire purpose of Scripture in the Bible is to show you that you could walk away with all the application points that you wanted to out of any given passage, and that those would never be enough for you to be made right with God. That what you need is Jesus, the Savior, who did those things perfectly on your behalf so that you might be saved. So sometimes we come to passages of scripture where the most helpful thing that you could do would be to just gaze at that passage of scripture and ask questions of it and seek to understand it for no other reason than cherishing Jesus in the middle of it. And that's what we've got this morning. So if you're a note taker, you're listening on the podcast, watching on the live stream, you're sitting here and uh, you're waiting for the part of the sermon that you write applications and then you underline it. Go ahead and scratch that part out. We're never going to get to that section. The application this morning is simply the wonder of Jesus. Like that, that's where we're headed. So I'm going to pray and then we'll jump in Luke 22 verse 66 down to 23 verse uh, 25. God, we thank you for this morning, for your word. God, I pray that you would help us to see the wonder of Jesus. God, that we would just cherish and adore and cling to the fact that, like we just sang, the power of hell is forever defeated because the son was willing to go to the cross. He died there. He triumphed in the grave. And now we can be saved. God, would you help us to cherish your grace in that? Would you help us to see Jesus clearly, to love him supremely? God, would your spirit use your word to bring forth the beauty of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some movies or novels, books, stories that 
begin at the end, they show you kind of like the last thing and then they flash you all the way back to the beginning and you spend the rest of the story catching up to whatever that end thing was. Saving Private Ryan is that way. Uh, Forrest Gump is that way. Tom Hanks must like those. And then The Prestige is that way. I want to do that this morning. And so I want to start at the end loop us back to the beginning and then sort of walk our way through that. And when I say the end, I mean the very, very end. The Bible pictures judgment, moment of judgment that humanity will face. The Bible pictures that as a sort of multi-step event. We typically think of it as one, one thing happens and then it's over. But the Bible pictures at least two steps. That there's first a separating, a separating between those who have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ and those who have not. That that separating happens, and then there's a second kind of judgment. Revelation says that after that separating has taken place, these books will be brought out. And it talks about the the book of the Lamb who's got these names of life in it, but that those names, those are the people who would be saved, will be read, and then people will be judged according to what they've done. And so Revelation pictures after that initial separating, which that's our justification, salvation by grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, we are justified. Those saved go to be with, in the presence of God forever, those not saved, are swept away from the presence of God forever. Then, Revelation talks about this great white throne of judgment where those who have not been saved are left to face the consequences of their sin as they stand before a holy and a righteous God. But then it also talks about this bema seat of Christ, that those who are saved, the people of God, are brought before the Son who sits on that seat And they're rewarded for their faithfulness. So there's a separating. And then both the unsaved and the saved are judged based on the things that they've done. The unsaved punished for their sin. The saved rewarded for their faithfulness. Brothers and sisters in Christ, your judgment on that day as you stand before the Bema seat of Christ will only take place Because Jesus was willing to face judgment on your behalf. The only reason that you would be saved and then rewarded at the Bema seat of Christ is because Jesus submitted himself to judgment. Human judgments in the courts of men that ultimately led him to the cross where he experienced God's just judgment for the sins of humanity. Jesus though perfect, stood condemned so that we, though sinful, might stand before the throne having been made perfect. That's our landing place this morning. I'm going to start reading in Luke 22, verse 66. I'm going to work my way down to verse 25 of chapter 23, but this is going to take some careful sort of examination and a thorough walking through this text in order for us to make it to the end, at which point we'll ask the question, so what? 
why does all of that matter? Here's what Luke chapter 22, verse 66 says. When daylight came, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, convened and brought him before their Sanhedrin. They asked, or they said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, if I do tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. Why do we need any more testimony, they said, since we've heard it ourselves from his mouth. Then their whole assembly rose up and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, you say so. Pilate then told the chief priests and the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. But they kept insisting. He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, where he started, even to here. When Pilate heard this, he asked if the man was a Galilean. Finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem during those days. Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time, he had wanted to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. So he kept asking him questions, but Jesus did not answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in bright clothing, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Previously, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people, and said to them, you have brought me this man as one who misleads the people, but in fact, after examining him in your presence, I have found no grounds to charge this man with those things you accuse him of. Neither has Herod, because he sent him back to us. Clearly he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore I will have him whipped and then release him. Then they all cried out together, take this man away, release Barabbas to us. He had been thrown into prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate addressed them again, but they kept shouting, crucify crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What has this man done wrong? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him whipped and release him. But they kept up the pressure, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified, and their voices won out. So Pilate decided to grant their demand and released the one they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder. But he handed Jesus over to their will. Where are we in Jesus's last day? We actually get a timestamp at the start of this. You know how your cell phone, if it's an iPhone at least, when you're texting with a person and then you stop and there's a gap and either you text, they text you, it'll give you like a little, like a timestamp, like, hey, these text messages took place at this time on this particular day. And then it doesn't do that for a while. And then if there's a long enough break, it gives you another timestamp. That's kind of what Luke does along this final day of Jesus. Every once in a while, he punctuates things by telling you when it took place. Verse 66 says, when daylight came. That's on Friday, probably like 6 a.m., that's when the working day started for Romans. So if you were 
uh, more of a night person. Sorry about that. Your day starts very early. The next time we get a timestamp, it's at noon on Friday. Jesus dies at about three o'clock. That's another timestamp that we get. So there's like a six hour window here. The account is very streamlined in Luke's gospel. If you take all the pieces of the four gospels and you put them together, Jesus is gonna stand trial three times before various uh, Jewish leaders. He's gonna stand trial three times before various Roman leaders before he's finally taken out before this crowd and they shout, give us Barabbas, crucify him. All of that takes place in about a six hour window, include Jesus then being beaten, having the cross strapped to his back and carrying that up to where he would ultimately be crucified. The Sanhedrin meets first thing in the morning, six o'clock. They rush over to Pilate's place in Jerusalem. Pilate has a conversation with Jesus. Pilate sends the whole delegation and Jesus over to Herod's place in Jerusalem. Herod tries to have a conversation. Herod then kicks him back to Pilate. There's this crowd that's gathered and finally Pilate takes him out before the people and says, what do you want me to do with this man? Jesus stands before the court of the Israelites. He stands before the court of the Romans. He stands before the court of the public. We're just gonna work our way through that and then we'll finish where we started there before the throne of God in the court of heaven. The first thing that happens here, verses 66 to 71 with the Sanhedrin, is that Jesus is clearly identified. From the start of his gospel, Luke has had one goal, that we would understand or know with certainty the things that have been said about Jesus. Luke's entire purpose is that people would have clarity about who Jesus is. And that is the crux of the issue for the Jewish leaders. Who is Jesus actually and who is he claiming to be? And the way this conversation plays out is important for what happens just a little bit down the road here. In fact, Jesus has been very careful about the names he uses for himself throughout the entirety of his ministry. So the first thing at daybreak here that the Sanhedrin asks of Jesus, if you're the Messiah, tell us. The word there for Messiah is the word Christos. That word can either be translated as Christ or Messiah. And at various points throughout the New Testament, one or the other of those terms is used. There's a very specific reason why the translators of the New Testament use the word Messiah here. Ultimately, what the Sanhedrin needs is a charge that they can bring against Jesus, that they can take to the Roman courts in order to have Jesus sentenced to death. The Roman court will not care one bit about a theological squabble between some random man from Galilee and the Jewish leaders of the day. They're not interested in getting involved in that. What they need, the Sanhedrin, is a charge that Rome would say, now hold on, that's a problem. What they would care about is if this man, Jesus, who's got this large following, is claiming to be king. There's no room in Rome for someone who would tell anyone to follow them instead of Caesar. And so that word, Messiah, literally means anointed. 
Who gets anointed? Kings. In the Old Testament, Saul is anointed. David is anointed. Solomon is anointed. So what's the real question that these Jewish leaders are asking Jesus? Jesus, if you have been anointed, tell us. Notice his answer. He said to them, if I do tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask, you will not answer. But from now on, the son of man, Jesus switches the identifying term, will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus' answer is essentially, hey, let's not play this game. You know who I am and you don't believe. For the religious leaders, the question is one of name. Are you Messiah or not? For Jesus, the question is one of belief. Call me what you want. You won't believe who I am. And so he flips his name, his identifier, to the son of man. That's a, a human term. And it's quite a powerful statement. The son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. But it's one that doesn't totally suit the Sanhedrin's needs or they don't actually, they aren't able to make sense of it. And so they respond with another question. Are you then the son of God? And Jesus says, if you say so. Like if, that, if that's what you're calling me, that sounds good. But if you've been reading through the gospel of Luke or you've sat down with this book like Luke's original audience and you read start to finish, you would understand that that phrase, son of God, has been used by a lot of different entities at different times. The angel Gabriel said that the baby that Mary would give birth to would be the son of God. That's the annunciation. That happens in Luke chapter one, verses 32 to 35. At Jesus's baptism in Luke 3, 22, the father booms from heaven. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. At Jesus's temptation by Satan in Luke chapter four, Satan identifies Jesus as the son of God. At the transfiguration, the father confirms it. Luke 9, 35, this is my son. And so when Jesus looks back at the Sanhedrin and says, if you say so, the reader of Luke is supposed to understand that it's not the Sanhedrin that's saying that this is the son of God. It was Gabriel, God's messenger, the father two different times, and even Satan who understands exactly who this man is. And at that, the religious leaders say, we've got everything we need. We've heard it from his own mouth. I think we can pin him to the wall. So they get up and they go to Pilate. And with Pilate, Jesus is going to be falsely accused. The whole assembly rose up, brought him before Pilate. They began accusing him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. If you've got a Bible there in front of you, uh, either flip to John chapter 18 or swipe to John chapter 18, whatever it takes for you to get there. John gives us a larger account of what happens in the middle of this trial. It starts in John 18, verse 29. And so we're gonna put both of these together to understand what happens between Jesus and Pilate. Why does the Sanhedrin need to go to Pilate in the first place? That's an important question. There's like a confusing delegation of power as it 
relates to the Roman Empire at this time. There were these local councils in various places who could determine matters of guilt or innocence as it relates to certain charges, but a lot of times they couldn't apply a sentence. They could just determine was a person guilty or not, and then they would need the Roman official to give a sentence, particularly in the issue of execution, capital punishment. And so what does the Sanhedrin actually want from Pilate? Well, let's just read this passage in John 18. This is starting in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas, high priest, to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They did not enter the headquarters themselves. Otherwise, they would, have, they would be defiled and unable to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and said, what charge do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. They're not interested in a trial, right? Look, Pilate, skip the pleasantries. We've already determined that this guy is guilty. You don't need to engage with any of that. Just take our word for it. If he weren't guilty, we wouldn't waste your time at like seven in the morning. Verse 31, Pilate told them, you take him and judge him according to your law. Then notice the next phrase. It's not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. They said this so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to buy, or going to die. What do they want from Pilate? A sentence. Not a trial. Not an accusation of guilt. They just need Pilate to hand down the sentence that Jesus should die. That's what these religious leaders have wanted since the early days of Jesus's ministry. They think they finally got him and they can get that sentence. So they go and they say, Pilate, trust us, he's guilty. Pilate says, well, then what are you doing here? We can't put anyone to death. Only you can do that. Then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus asked, answered, are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? Look, do you want to know that? Or are you only asking that because that's what someone says? Pilate says, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus replies, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Are you a king then? Pilate asked. You say, that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this and I've come into this world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth, Pilate said. He wants to have an existential conversation all of a sudden. After he said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no grounds for charging him. Flip back to Luke chapter 23. Luke takes all of that conversation and condenses it. Verse three, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered, that's Jesus, you say so. Then Pilate told the chief priests in the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. They don't want a legal judgment from Pilate. They want a sentencing. Pilate can't give them the sentence because he doesn't think that he's, Jesus is guilty of anything. I can't kill an innocent man is what Pilate is saying. There are three explicitly political charges brought against Jesus. Those are in verse two. We found this man misleading our nation. That would be 
the act of sedition. There's a fine line between treason and sedition. Sedition is that you're saying or doing things that would cause people to engage in treason. Treason would be to like take up weapons against the king or the government. So there's a a fine line there. Jesus is misguiding the nation. In reality, he hasn't done anything close to this. He's been engaging in conduct and speech that seeks to lead people into a true relationship with God, and that is a threat to the Jewish system of religion, not to Rome. The second charge is that he opposes paying taxes to Caesar. That one's patently false. Jesus recently taught that one should render to Caesar what is Caesar's. That's an obvious lie. Third, he himself has said that he is the Messiah, a king. This is the one that could potentially get Jesus the death penalty. If he were rivaling, challenging, or questioning the authority or the position of Caesar, the king, in Rome, that's an automatic death sentence. But again, even that statement is false. Jesus never uses that title for himself. In fact, he was very careful not to use it with the Sanhedrin moments ago. Throughout his ministry, you could go back and read the entire gospel of Luke. He never attaches that title to himself. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, but even in that conversation, Jesus does not take up the title. When he rode into Jerusalem, he was careful to avoid the images or the actions that would position himself as a king. He didn't come in on a big white horse. He came in on a donkey. But this is the charge that Pilate picks up on. Are you king of the Jews? Jesus' answer, my kingdom is not of this world. So for Pilate, you're no threat then. Your kingdom is not of this world, then you are not my problem. I find no reason to put this man to death. Jesus has actually repeatedly declared innocent over the course of these trials. The first one is... Chapter 23, verse four, Pilate told the chief priests in the crowd, I find no grounds for charging this man. The next one happens in verse 11. Pilate finds out that Jesus is from Galilee and it's like he breathes a sigh of relief and says, this problem is not mine, go see Herod. That's who you should be talking to. So they all shuffle over to Herod's place. Herod, we're told in chapter 23, verse 8, was really glad to see Jesus because for a long time he had heard about this man and wanted to see a miracle for himself in person. So he gets Jesus there in front of him and he starts trying to get Jesus to do something miraculous. Like, hey, I heard you could change water into wine. Maybe do that and we can just really uh, get drunk together or something like we can have a grand old time here, Jesus. Jesus says nothing. He does not do any miracles. And so what happens in verse 11? Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in bright clothing, sent him back to Pilate. They put some gaudy robe on him. They dress him up to look like a king because obviously he's not. That's what Herod is saying. This is all a circus. Here, you want this man to be claiming he's a king? I'll dress him up like a king for you. Get out of my hair. Go back to Pilate. Big picture, Luke is doing something very specific in all of this. In every way, from the beginning of Luke's gospel all the way through these trials, Luke wants us to understand that Jesus was perfect. He's completely innocent. He's totally righteous. The Jewish leaders don't care about that. The Roman authorities can't get anybody to agree with them about it. 
Pilate, this man's innocent. Herod, here, I'll dress him up as a king and send him back, even though he's innocent. And then again, 23 verses 14 and 15, Pilate says for a second and a third time, you brought me this man as one who misleads the people. But in fact, after examining him in your presence, I have found no grounds to charge this man with those things you accuse him of. Verse 22, what has this man done wrong? I have found no grounds for the death penalty. And then Jesus is unjustly condemned in what is a complete perversion of justice. Jesus is sent to his death. The people charged with carrying out a just sentence here abandon that responsibility. In fact, two different times after declaring Jesus innocent, Pilate is willing to just have beaten Jesus beaten to appease the mob. Look, I think he's totally innocent, but I'll at least rough him up a little bit if that will make everyone happy. We'll whip him, we'll beat him, and then we can all move on. The very basis of justice in a society is that there are some people among us who would take on the responsibility of setting aside their personal desires in order to act according to the law on behalf of the good of society. Pilate and Herod are the ones who are charged with that responsibility, and yet they totally abdicate it and flip it upside down. They end up looking at a mob of people and saying, you tell us what you want. And in verse 18, the people do. They all cried out together, take this man away. Jesus. Release Barabbas to us. In verses 19 and 25, Luke wants you to understand Barabbas is actually guilty of something. He had been thrown into prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. Verse 25, they released the one they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder. I don't know exactly what the scene would have looked like, but there are two people standing there. Barabbas, actually guilty of stuff. Jesus, not guilty of anything. And the whole scene takes on a particular brand of irony when you understand what Barabbas' name is. Bar, son of, Abba, father. Here's what you got. Two people standing there, Pilate and Herod, crowd, gathered out there. You've got son of the lowercase father, actually guilty of some stuff. You've got the son of the capital F father, totally innocent. And what you have is a crowd of people saying, give us the son of the father. Imagine what's running through Jesus's head. You don't even get it. And so the guilty son of the father is handed over to be released And the perfectly innocent son of the capital F father is led away to his death. The guilty one is given to them and allowed to walk free. The innocent one is handed over and condemned to death. Verse 25, we're told, he, that's Pilate, handed Jesus over to their will. Pilate turns Jesus over to the will of the people. And from start to finish in this thing, as the intensity escalates, Jesus becomes more and more calm. Initially has a conversation with Pilate, things ratchet up a little bit, or he has a conversation with the Sanhedrin, things ratchet up. He has a little bit of a conversation with Pilate, things ratchet up again. He says nothing to Herod. And when things get their most intense, standing there while the people are shouting that Jesus should be crucified and Barabbas should be let go, he just stands there 
totally silent. And he's willingly submitted to the Father's will. Jesus knows that this whole thing is not about the Sanhedrin. He knows that it's not about Pilate or Herod. He knows that it's not about Barabbas or this crowd. Jesus knows that he's not being handed over to the will of these people. He's submitting himself to the will of the Father. He's known that since the very beginning of his ministry. This is all about the will of the Father whereby the Son would be condemned so that humanity might be made perfect. And because he knows that, he does nothing to resist or stop what's happening. Zoom out and get one kind of final review here. Luke, from the very beginning of his gospel, has been laying before his readers the identity of Jesus. Luke has shown Jesus to be sinless and innocent throughout his gospel. He's shown us that Jesus has this settled and resolute manner in which he's continually and consistently moving toward this moment and this fate. And now here we are, and the perfect one is condemned to the cross. And Jesus does nothing to resist it or to stop it or to slow it down. The people in this account who are actually guilty of anything are all the people in the account not named Jesus. Barabbas is actually guilty. Pilate and Herod are guilty of perverting justice. The religious leaders are telling overt lies. The crowd is whipped into this frenzy. Everyone stands condemned except for Jesus who is sent to his death. And so the big question after all of that is, so what? Jesus, though perfect, stood condemned so that we, though sinful, might stand before the throne having been made perfect. Go with me to where we started this. At the very, very end. Jesus says in his own ministry that at the end of all things, there will be a separating of believers and unbelievers, those saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus and those who are not. He says it'll be like wheat from chaff on a threshing floor. It will be like sheep being separated from goats in a livestock pen. It'll be like good fish being separated from worthless fish on a dock somewhere. It'll be like good trees that bear good fruit being separated from bad trees that bear bad fruit in an orchard. The first thing that happens at our moment of judgment is that separating. Those made righteous by God's grace through faith in Jesus will be separated from those left marked by their own sin. That judgment is entirely based upon the merit of Jesus. Nothing that you've done will make an ounce of difference in that moment. You'll either stand there covered by the spotless righteousness of Christ or you will stand there exposed in the sin-stained reality of your own flesh. Those are the only options in that moment, one or the other. And one wonder of the gospel, of which there are millions, One wonder of the gospel is that we're told that in Jesus, we have this high priest who can sympathize with us in every way because he has been tempted in every way just as we are. That's Hebrews chapter 15 and 16. And because of that, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. Tempted in every way, 
just as we are, which will include brothers and sisters in Christ, the temptation in our moment of judgment to stand there before a holy and a righteous God and plead our own innocence. Six times in a matter of hours, Jesus stood before human courts and could have pled his own innocence, but he didn't do it. When you stand in your moment of judgment, you will not stand there alone. Jesus will stand there with you and you will not need to say a word because he will speak all of his righteousness on your behalf and you will be saved. So what in this passage? The so what is that in that moment, brothers and sisters in Christ, you will be saved. That's the so what. It's not go home and do these three or four things and in that moment, then you will be saved. It's sit here and stare at the wonder of Jesus and see that he has done everything on your behalf and you cannot add a single iota to it, nor do you need to. That's the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. And when you stand there in the court of heaven before the throne of God and you are tempted to plead your own innocence, the blood of Christ will plead on your behalf because he was willing to stand condemned, even though innocent. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is written on his hands. My name is graven on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue could ever bid me to depart from God. That's the wonder of the gospel. That Jesus, though perfect, stood condemned so that we, though sinful, might stand before the throne of God having been made perfect. Amen? Amen. Let's sing together.